Hello, and welcome to the Nutrition and Life Podcast. This is where we look at various nutrition and fitness-related topics through the lens of application. We want to give you practical takeaways so that you can create your healthiest, best self backed by knowledge. Now, on to the episode with your host, Coach Lisa. Hello, and welcome back to the Nutrition and Life Podcast. My name is Lisa, and I have the pleasure of speaking with Coach Mike Milner today, who helps driven individuals align their nutrition with their personality to achieve epic results. He's also the host of the Mind Over, Over Macros podcast. I'm super excited to speak to you today, Mike. Welcome to the show. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I'm I'm particularly excited. I was saying before we started recording that we're going to cover the topic of personality-based or uh, focused training and nutrition or nutrition mostly, um, because I I think it's a topic that's not covered enough while we often hear, you know, individualization or personalization. um, It's not usually specifically personality-based. So yeah, but why don't we start with um, you just giving us a little bit of a background about yourself, how you got into, uh, I guess, or how you got where you are today and how you got interested in um, personality-based nutrition. Yeah, so I'll try to give the short condensed version. I was I was kind of a late bloomer to fitness and nutrition. Um, I actually grew up an athlete, so I was always active playing sports was, you know, relatively fit for my whole life uh, until I went off to college. Um, I continued to play sports in college, but then after I graduated, um, I had a lot of poor habits that I picked up and I was no longer uh, very active. So um, I was drinking a lot. I was eating a lot of fast food and ended up gaining around 80 pounds in a very short period of time. And it really wasn't until I it was just like a random morning. I woke up and I went into the bathroom and I, I, I stayed, I went to school at university of Maryland. I stayed an extra year. Um, I graduated and then stayed an extra year because I was dating somebody at the time who then became my wife, who's now my ex-wife. Anyway, we, uh, I woke up one morning and I went to the bathroom and I looked in the mirror and like, just totally did not recognize myself. It was just one of those moments. That's like, what the hell happened? And I, I couldn't quite figure it all out. All I knew was that I was unhappy. Um, I was embarrassed to go home and see family or friends because I made up all these stories in my head that they're going to say, like, what happened to you? And how'd you let yourself go? And I always identified as an athlete. So now here I am 80 pounds overweight. So I started trying to figure out weight loss uh, on my own. And at that point, I knew nothing. Uh, I just knew do a bunch of cardio and try to eat very little. So that's what I tried to do. And it really led me into a dark place of chronic dieting, a lot of calorie restriction, hours of cardio a day, punishing myself if I ate quote unquote off track. Uh, and I spent close to a decade in that cycle of gaining a bunch of weight. I mean, losing a bunch of weight and gaining it back and going around and around and around and um, you know, feeling like I was banging my head against the wall. So ultimately, I ended up finding a gym that was really more focused on strength training versus cardio. And that was kind of like the first turning point for me was recognizing that I didn't have to spend hours and hours doing cardio every day. Um, But I noticed that a lot of people at the gym, like myself, were consistent with their workouts, but really struggled with their nutrition. And that was really what kind of opened up my mind that it's it's probably a nutrition thing. Uh, So I just poured myself into education on nutrition and human metabolism and nutritional science. And even then I found like I got some answers, but I was also 
noticing that even with all of the best science-based practices and knowing macronutrients and knowing how metabolism works, that the missing piece for most people was really the psychology of behavior change. And we can we can know the best way to eat, we can know the best way to train, but if we're not consistent with it, if it doesn't fit what you know our preferences and our lifestyle and our personality, then it really doesn't do us any good. And that was like truly what totally changed my my whole world was learning about uh, psychology, cognitive behavioral therapy, personality psychology. Um, and then one of my early mentors was Christian Thibodeau, who taught me about neurotyping and aligning training and nutrition with different personality types. So um, that's that's the short version of kind of how it all came to be. And I've been doing this now for over 10 years. I've had my own coaching business for over five and a half years now. And um, yeah, it's been, it's been uh, quite the journey so far. Awesome. Well, thank you for giving us a bit of a, a background here. And um, I myself have taking, taken two of the certifications um, from Christian Thibodeau. So I really like his, his teachings. And I'm excited for you to tell us a bit more about what that actually means, like personality-based nutrition. Maybe you can help us understand in the sense of like how many, how can we categorize ourselves, I guess, and how does that how can we transfer that into our approach with nutrition? Yeah, for sure. So uh, it's interesting. It, it really depends on where there, there's different. I mean, if we back up, psychologists have been doing personality testing for a very long time. Um, and there's a lot of different personality tests out there, the Braverman assessment, the Cloninger model. Um, and ultimately, uh, it it really depends where you look some some of the tests will break people into four categories. Some will break people into five categories. Uh, so with understanding that the connection between personality and behavior is really through neurotransmitters, which are basically just chemical messengers in the brain that control literally everything that we do from movement to emotions to fear, anxiety. Uh, there's not a single process that can exist without neurotransmitters kind of leading the charge. So when, when you look at neurotransmitters, a lot of times people just assume that you could do a, a basic blood test and see how much dopamine do I have and how much adrenaline do I have? Uh, the problem with that is it only really gives you a snapshot in time and it doesn't tell you the efficacy of the system as a whole. So somebody might have high levels of dopamine, but if their dopamine receptors are not working properly, then, then the dopamine system may be impaired as an example. So personality characteristics really give us the best view and insight into neurotransmitter balance and dominance and what systems might be controlling certain behaviors. And, and the reason why that's important is because if I know, for example, uh, that somebody is very dopamine dominant, meaning they have high sensitivity to dopamine and they are very driven by dopamine. And, and that might look like somebody who's very extroverted, outgoing, talkative, a risk taker, uh, very goal-driven, well, now I can set up a nutrition and training protocol that aligns with that personality type. So the way that uh, looking at personality-based nutrition and training um, from, from Christian, he breaks it down into five categories. I followed along the same because he was my early mentor um, and, and I worked with him for, uh, for a number of years. Uh, so I kind of followed the same theory of five different personality types. Now, that's not to say that there are only five different types of people in the world. It's just looking at it from different neurotransmitter uh, systems and the dominance of those systems based off of 
personality characteristics. So within each neurotype, you're going to have individual variants across the board. However, it does give us a really strong starting point when we're prescribing a nutrition or a training protocol for a particular individual, like the dopamine dominant individual that I'm talking about. Um, There's certain things that we would do from a nutrition and training standpoint that would align with their nature. And the reason why that's helpful is because if they feel more like themselves, if they're working with their nature, it's easier to stay compliant. Mm -hmm. And when it's easier to stay compliant, it's easier to make progress. And so that's kind of the basic uh, overview of, of kind of how we break things down. Awesome. Yeah. I love that you added that it's really not just the five types of five personality types. Um, For instance, when I first took the, or heard about it, learned about it and thought about it, I, I kind of classified myself as a bit of a mixture of a 2A and 3, and maybe we can go more into the actual types later on. Um, nowadays, I'm much more of a 2B and 3. Um, and so I have been thinking about, you know, how much of that is actually physiology per, uh, and, and genetics, etc. cetera, uh, and what is circumstances, experiences, and so on. Um, and, and it's probably, you know, a mixture of, of the both. Um, but yeah, I found that that's super interesting and just helpful for people to know probably that you're not just one type and you're probably going to identify with two types at least more. Um, and then it might change over the course of the time. Um, but yeah, maybe you can uh, give us a little bit of a snapshot of each one of the types so that people might be able to um, just identify with, with, or think about which one they might be. Yeah, for sure. So um, looking at type one, 1A, 1B. Uh, and the reason why they're classified together is because their main neurotransmitter system that drives behavior is dopamine. So type 1As are dopamine dominant, which means they can have high levels of dopamine or high dopamine sensitivity. So if your dopamine levels are high, um, that's one scenario. If you have low levels of dopamine, but you're very sensitive to an increase in dopamine, um, those behaviors are going to show pretty similarly. And, and that's somebody who's very outgoing. A type 1A is very competitive, um, almost you know this kind of person that just walks into a room and, and takes charge, just a natural leader, um, you know, very, very talkative, very outgoing, risk taker, will do anything to win, um, sometimes can come across as even like aggressive or even a little bit um, off-putting, although they can be very charismatic, uh, those are the people that just, they, they will outwork you. They'll out hustle you. They'll do whatever it takes just to win. Um, and then you have type one B's who are also dopamine dominant. So they also have high dopamine sensitivity, uh, but they have high levels of a neurotransmitter called acetylcholine, um, which is really responsible for, uh, motor learning, uh, you know, kind of like explosive movements, um, skill development, uh, athleticism. So, they're going to be more of like the lead by example. Uh, they're very imaginative. Um, they're also competitive, although not to the extreme extent of a type 1A, uh, but they typically will gravitate towards more explosive movements, maybe CrossFit, Olympic lifting, uh, where a lot of force production, you know, sprinters, that type of thing. Uh, and they're, they're, they're great at multitasking. They can do because acetylcholine um, is really connected with that, that brain communication and motor learning. And um, so which, what's interesting about multitasking is we don't really multitask. It's actually your brain's ability to shift from one thing to the next very rapidly. So it gives off the appearance of multitasking, which is what 
type one Bs can do. Um, they have the ability to go from like zero to a hundred and then back to zero again, very quickly. Um, so you can see somebody who like is very calm and collected and then they explode and then they calm down again as if nothing ever happened. So <laughs> if you've ever watched like an Olympic athlete, when they, when they're getting ready to step on stage and perform a lift, uh, it almost looks like they're sleeping in their chairs, kind of sitting there minding their business. And then all of a sudden they throw up like 400 pounds over their head and then they're back to like, you know, sleeping again. And and that is, is a, a sign of a type one B, um, type two A's, which is, which is my dominant neurotype were adrenaline dominant. So adrenaline is that stress response neurotransmitter that gets us into that heightened state to be able to deal with whatever's in front of us. Um, because we're adrenaline dominant, we have actually low levels of adrenaline at rest, but high sensitivity to a spike in adrenaline. So oftentimes type two A's, um, can be very uh, almost chameleon-like. We can blend into any situation. Uh, we can kind of fit in with any group because we can almost mold our personality to fit the people that we're around. Um, and then with adrenaline, when when you have that heightened adrenaline response, usually will turn into or extroverts when adrenaline is activated. So a type 2A might seem very quiet and reserved if they're just kind of minding their own business, not around a group of people. But the minute that there's that adrenaline spike, whether it's through a social setting or through um, you know an activity like working out, they almost become this alpha version of themselves. The easiest example is like, Bruce Banner in The Incredible Hulk, where, you know, very quiet, reserved person, and all of a sudden the adrenaline kicks in and we become The Incredible Hulk. Um, so that's kind of the the type um, or the characteristics of a type 2A. Type 2B, their dominant neurotransmitter is glutamate, uh, which is an emotional amplifier. It also plays a, a role in memory and, and some other functions, but type 2Bs are very emotionally driven. Um, they often make decisions with with gut feeling and instinct and emotion. Uh, they're they're people that love very deeply. They're the ones that like will give you the shirt off their back and um, really prefer that one on one connection versus a group setting. Uh, so that's typically what you're going to see from a type two B. Um, they have high highs from their their mood, but they also have low lows. So you can you know oftentimes. Uh, see a type 2B runs the spectrum of emotions and they feel their feelings, they wear their heart on their sleeve, that type of person. Type 3, their their primary uh, neurotransmitter system is serotonin. Um, they actually have low levels of serotonin, which make them a little bit more anxious because serotonin calms the brain down. Um, it's kind of this, uh, we have neurotransmitters that amp us up and we have neurotransmitters that calm us down. The two main neurotransmitters that calm us down are serotonin and GABA. Whereas GABA is kind of like the hard stop. It's like the emergency break. Whereas serotonin is more of a modulator where it will kind of bring you down to the level that you need. Um, and so with serotonin, a lot of people think of it as the feel good neurotransmitter because it, it slows down your brain activity. It keeps you in that relaxed state. Um, and so some people even call it like the happy chemical uh, which is somewhat accurate, but with type threes, because they have lower levels of serotonin, they have higher levels of anxiety. And when you have higher levels of anxiety, typically the way that we we accommodate for that is by over planning. We like to be very detailed and structured and organized. So type threes are very data driven. Uh, they love to work with numbers and logic and facts and and certainty, and they want everything mapped out, you know, as far in advance as possible. Um, they typically don't like to be 
in, in big groups of people, uh, usually they're more uh, kind of cerebral. They kind of have that internal dialogue with themselves and, um, and they can become very proficient at, at, you know, skills. They, they will typically, because of that repetition, they like the repetitiveness, the predictability of certain skills. Um, they'll tend to become very proficient at certain things like maybe accounting or working with numbers or data. Uh, so that's kind of the, the overview of, of each of the five different types. And as you mentioned, everybody's going to have a mixture. It's not, you're going to have one dominant type, but typically you're going to see yourself in, in multiple different personality types. Awesome. Thank you for that overview. I think that was very, um, yeah, we, everyone I'm sure who listened could identify a little bit with one type more or the other. Um, now, how does that translate over to nutrition? Because um, obviously you help people mostly with, with nutrition. You mentioned some of the more like what kind of sports an individual of each category might be more inclined towards. But how can we as, as coaches or even for ourselves apply that to our nutrition? Yeah, it's a great question. So um, there's kind of a couple perspectives that I look at. The first is I look at the overall things that motivate different personality types. Um, and I, I use motivation loosely, but uh, because I don't I think, you know, we need to stop relying on motivation for certain things. But if we can work with the way that our brains work, it allows us to stay more engaged in the process. It allows us to stay more consistent and compliant. So when I say motivation, what I mean is that if I know that I'm working with a type 1A or type 1B, I know that they're driven by results. I know they're very goal-oriented. So when I set up a nutrition plan, let's say they're working on fat loss, there's the overall structure of the plan that might be a little bit more aggressive because of the fact that they need to see results. They like to win. They're competitive. They, they're goal-driven. So if I give them this like very, you know, kind of meticulous, very slow and steady and boring uh, process, they're probably going to lose interest and, and go try something else. Uh, so I look at it first from that perspective, like type two A's like myself, we crave variety. We love to try new things. And again, that's the, that's the adrenaline dominance. Um, because when we get that increase in adrenaline, uh, when something becomes predictable and repeat, it's repeated so many times, we no longer get that adrenaline response from it. Things that are new, uh, give you that adrenaline spike. So when, so we always are looking for, that's why I was such a classic program hopper. It was like, I would try something, I would it, lose the novelty. And then I would want to try the new thing. And because it would make me feel good because my, I naturally respond to that adrenaline increase. So I know if I'm working with a 2A, I can't just give them a repetitive plan. That's the same thing day after day because they're going to get bored and lose interest. Um, you know, type 2Bs, we know that we're going to deal with more emotional eating. So we're going to work in some of the mindset and internal work to deal with emotional eating and 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 managing your emotions and emotional processing. Type 3s, I'm going to give them a very structured and detailed plan and help them see things as far out as we can so that they can work with the way that their brain works. They they love the the data, they love the, you know, the plan ahead, repetition, the same thing over and over again. They won't get bored with that. They'll actually thrive with a plan that's very repetitive. So the first thing that I look at is the overview of the plan itself. And then the second thing that I look at is how can we use nutritional strategies to support the dominant neurotransmitter system for each type. So for type ones, we want to support dopamine as much as possible. The worst thing that can happen to a type one is either dopamine depletion or 
desensitization of the dopamine receptors. Now, a lot of that is stress-driven, but it can also be nutritional um, because if we're not getting in enough protein, for example, um, or if we have um, you know a plan that's that's way too carb heavy, uh, that can also impact dopamine. Um, basically we're looking at the building blocks of dopamine, which would be, uh, you know, higher car, I mean, higher protein. Um, and then we would typically want to lean towards, uh, more fats than carbs for mo in, in most cases, there's obviously exceptions. Um, and so that's the, the second part of it is how can we, you know, certain foods that will support dopamine production, um, certain macro ratios that will support dopamine production. Um, and then we just look at the same thing across the board. How can we support adrenaline for type 2a uh, glutamate we don't want glutamate to be too high or too low for a type 2b um, serotonin we want to make sure that a type 3 is getting support to produce more serotonin and GABA to help them calm their brain down since they're more uh, you know more prone to anxiety um, so those are all the things from a nutrition standpoint looking at actual food choices looking at macro ratios and then the real the, the biggest thing through all of this is is really stress uh, because mm -hmm. Each different type has a you know different sensitivity to stress, but it plays a role when it comes to um, neurotransmitter health and metabolic health and hormone health. So um, there's there's the nutrition side, the lifestyle side, the stress management side. So these these parts are kind of all integrated together to ultimately make the person feel as good as we can, feel like themselves, feel like this is a very natural fit for the way that I'm wired, and um, that's what a lot of our clients will say when they start doing this is it's more like, I feel more like myself. This, it doesn't feel that difficult. It feels easier to adhere to. And that's how we know that we're on the right track. Awesome. Yeah. I think that's a really great foundation or the best foundation to make sure that adherence is as, as easy as possible. Um, especially when it pertains to, to weight loss, which is a challenge in any case, you mentioned a few good pointers. So if someone identifies more with a type one, a, for example, or one in general, um, lower, generally a little bit lower carbs, higher fats, protein, of course, um, high as well. Um, would it be fair to say that then for a type three, perhaps, uh, a bit more frequent, meals might be in order and maybe more on the higher carb, lower fat sort of range. And then in the middle with type twos or type two, a particularly, you mentioned variety being um, key. So potentially, um, you know, not definitely more with, with macros as opposed to like a meal plan or maybe having some uh, refeed days or so just to keep it quote unquote fun for them is, would that be fair to say? Yeah, very accurate, especially the type two A's, maybe some calorie cycling or carb cycling mixed in there. Type threes will definitely do well with more frequent meals, um, you know, and and a higher carb plan. Um, type two B's, typically you're going to go not as high as you would for uh, on, on the carb side of things as you would for a type three, but you're going to go in that moderate to higher carb range for a type two B as well. Um, so yeah, those are some of the things that um, you know, meal timing can be something that you play with for the different types, but I always like to start with the foundation of, of the food quality and also the macro ratios that we're working with um, and really looking at it from a lifestyle and stress standpoint before we start getting into more of like the advanced meal timing and frequency and that sort of thing. Awesome. Um, yeah, I have a, a small 
group of coaches uh, that we I meet with every Wednesday and we tend to discuss like a research article. And a few weeks ago, we chose not to discuss a research article, but I wanted to talk about neurotyping. And someone asked, um, how do you imp implement that with your coach or with your coaching? Do you have like an intake questionnaire that pertains to neurotyping, et cetera? And I said, not, I personally don't really. I have a few questions that could lead me towards um, seeing where someone's inclined. For example, one question is, do you like to see, or are you motivated by fast progress or do you prefer a slow and steady approach? And of course, mind you, almost everyone says they like fast progress <laughs> because was, why wouldn't they? Um, but I think most of the time after a few weeks at the latest, it becomes very apparent what type of person someone is like uh, if they in their intake already tell you about their um, travel plans next summer and they're concerned about that you know okay <laughs> this is probably not a type 1a or b <laughs> or if someone says they've competed in powerlifting or whatever i'm probably not going to classify them as a three so it helps me guide guide me that that way a little bit um but yeah you personally like in your intake when you take on new clients Do you have very specific questionnaire questionnaire um, that pertains to neurotyping? Yeah, so we actually have a hundred question personality assessment that we give Amazing. our clients. Um, anybody can take it. Actually, it's just it's free on my website, but we make our our clients do that if they haven't already um, before we start working with them, just to get a, a head start. Uh, you know, I always say um, I have this you know kind of like caveat to to neurotyping, which is it's, it's not a panacea. It's not something where it's like, because sometimes people are looking for like the, the magic bullet or like, what's the one thing that I'm missing that's going to bring it all together. And it's not that it's, it's understanding, you know, the person it's understanding the individual and the way that they're wired. It's, it's just like, you know, any kind of you know, therapist would go through the same type of intake process with a new client to understand their, their family history and their background and childhood and all the things that they've kind of been through. Well, this is like our version of that, like really trying to get a strong understanding of the individual and the way that they're wired. So we do start with a personality assessment, but we also start with a full lifestyle assessment and metabolic assessment. And we need to know um, really where we're starting, uh, you know, a clear picture of where our point A is. And, and a lot of that is dependent on some of the things that they've tried in the past and their dieting history. And, um, you know, some of the stuff that they've gone through from a stress standpoint and, um, you know, what they're doing for their activity levels and their nutrition and all of that. So we use it as one piece of the puzzle that we pull in to all of those other pieces to give us a really good starting point. Um, and then yes, we can use that as kind of a, you know, a pillar that we, that we lean on to make sure that the plan fits The way that they're wired, uh, but there's there's a lot of other variables that go into that other than just the the neurotyping part. So it's really helpful, uh, but I also try to put the caveat out there that it's it's not a panacea that solves everything. I like that that you're emphasizing that. I do think like when I first heard about it, I think it just gives you permission to be more of yourself or it it might also explain to you why some other things have not worked in the past like if a type 3 for instance had tried keto before and intermittent fasting and they failed at it although everyone in their environment was so successful it might explain to them oh okay well i'm supposed to have more carbs i just do better with that and that's why my anxiety was through the roof or you know vice versa it might explain to a type 1 why they're 
so bored when they do cardio. <laughs> so yeah, I think it just gives them, a, a, it, it gives you permission to be more uh, of yourself. So um, yeah, but what I wanted to kind of lead into as well, is just, I mean, you mentioned it, it, it's like with, with a therapist as well, it, it provides you with some guidance in the sense of figuring out how a person might work or might be thinking, etc. And how does that lead into goal achievement in general? Like how can we from um, personality awareness, et cetera, um, transfer that over to the psychology of goal achievement? Yeah. So um, a lot of people um, kind of misunderstand the process for goal achievement. It's, it's something that's been very well documented and yet so many people fall into the standard trap of trying to do everything um, all at once. And like the biggest mistake that we make when it comes to achieving goals, we, first of all, we set these big ambitious goals for ourselves, which is great because it gives you a direction. Um, but what happens is when we, the act of setting a goal and it, when it's a, the bigger and more ambitious, the goal is the more of a dopamine spike that we get. And then, and dopamine is the neurotransmitter that, that gives us promise of pleasure. A lot of people call it the pleasure seeking or the reward center of the brain, uh, but it's actually the promise of pleasure. Uh, and there's been some really cool research around this. Um, some of it, the studies that were done uh, many, many decades ago would would not be allowed to be repeated again because it's a version of, of a little bit of torture, but we did <laughs> gain a lot of um, insight into what actually happens when dopamine is stimulated in the brain. Um, and it's not that it feels euphoric or amazing. It's that it feels like the next time it happens will be the time that it feels amazing. So it, it motivates us to act, which is a good thing when you're trying to achieve a goal. However, as we know, in the starting point, when you, when you set your, you know, that first step to goal achievement is when motivation is the highest because you've just had that dopamine spike, which is like, there's this promise of pleasure. So I'm going to go move towards this thing. And it's a, a survival based mechanism, uh, which is why, you know, things like, um, you know, high fat and high sugar foods and, and sex and things like that, where it was built for survival, we were motivated to go towards those things to keep our, our species alive. Um, so when we feel that feeling, we start to take action. However, it's not long lasting because as you know, the work begins and it's very tedious, you know, changing your body composition. If we're using that as an example or whatever goal you want to achieve, if you want to, you know, earn more money, you want to get a promotion, you want to lose some weight. Um, these processes are very boring. It's, it's showing up consistently and doing the basic stuff every single day without any promise of anything in return. So what happens is dopamine fades and you're no longer getting that same reward center, uh, you know, that, that dopamine hit that you've, you previously did when you set the goal. And it's very difficult to stay um, consistent once that happens. So a lot of times people will sabotage themselves by then stopping because it's boring, it's work, it's difficult, there's challenge, there's no more euphoric feeling, there's no more promise of pleasure. Uh, and they set the goal again, and that triggers the dopamine response again, and they start it all over again, which is why many people will, will kick off January you know, with their resolution, uh, they'll, they'll slowly lose interest by February or March. Most people have already given up and then they'll set the next goal. Maybe before summer, they'll get the dopamine hit again and rinse and repeat that process. Now, the way that goal achievement actually works is we don't want to set 
the the dopamine hit to be so high because after an emotional peak comes an emotional valley. Um, and this has been studied in psychology research where if we actually look at it as goal directionality, meaning we're not setting this like 50 pound goal, we're just setting a direction like a North star. It's not the outcome itself. It's I want to move in this direction. I want to move into the direction of better health. And now we're not getting this like crazy dopamine hit thinking and envisioning, envisioning our body in the perfect state. It's more of, I know I want to move in this direction. And then we actually identify the process-based goals instead of the outcome-based goals, but the process-based goals that are going to help us to get there. And when I say get there, it means I'm going to get in, move into this direction. I'm not looking at a finish line. So we remove the finish line, we remove the timeline, and we simply look at the direction and the process that it takes to get there. And then that becomes your, your checklist or your, your reward-based system, which is, did I you know go for a walk today? Um, and just by checking that off and, and confirming, I did the thing that I said I was going to do, you actually get a little bit of a dopamine hit from from completing a task. So you can have something in your, your phone notes or on, on, on paper, like a calendar or something that just confirms 10 minute walk was on my to-do list. I checked it off. What are the other process-based goals that we're going to look at? Maybe it's protein with each meal. Uh, maybe it's, you know, drinking a hundred ounces of water. Maybe it's getting in three workouts a week. Now we have the process in place and all we're doing is looking at, am I moving in the direction that I want? Am I completing these process-based goals more often than not? Because we're not trying to be perfect with it. Just more often than not, I'm doing the things that I need to do to move us in that direction. Um, the, the way that personality comes into that is it tells us the shortcomings that may come up, meaning type ones, they're probably going to go as fast as they can towards the goal. So we have to really dial back the expectation and, and have to emphasize that that winning is you did the 10 minute walk. You want it, you know, if you check off these three things, you won the day and really speaking their language um, with type two A's, we know they're probably going to get bored very easily. So how can we create some novelty through the process? Um, type threes, we know that they like the, the to plan ahead. So let's give them, uh, you know, what the next 12 weeks might look like. So there's different things that we can do from a goal achievement perspective that work with the way that their brains work. But at the end of the day, um, goal achievement has been, we, we know what works based off of research and we know what doesn't work. And yet so many of us fall into the trap of what doesn't work because we look at this big ambitious goal. We're so outcome focused and we lose sight that all that does is it creates an arbitrary dopamine hit. It'll wear off. And then it's just you and the boring work that needs to be done. And if you're constantly looking for that next dopamine hit, you're probably going to sabotage yourself and start all over again. Mm -hmm. And that's so really great pra practical takeaway, I think, for, for people. And um, what comes to mind when you're mentioning those high dopamine spikes and then the valleys afterwards? And I don't know if that's connected, but something um, uh, like reward prediction error that your brain might be doing, you know, if you're thinking, oh, I'm going to follow this plan for six weeks, I'm going to lose 25 pounds. And then you put in the work and like after, after week, uh, you might only have lost a pound or two and you're like, oh, well, I put in all the work now I'm not going as fast. So you're, 
your expectation is not met and you're losing motivation maybe in that sense or you're just yeah like you're saying that that initial really high dopamine surge is gone and i think at, we're as you said we're really good in the beginning and sometimes actually also pretty good at the end because we see the finish line but that middle all that's yeah what unfortunately most people don't even get to the finish line um but i think Another issue is when we get to the finish line, when we achieve the goal. And that's actually also when a lot of people um, self-sabotage because, yeah, again, that reward prediction error, it, it might not be like, oh, okay, I'm at my goal weight now, but I still, I'm still unhappy or I still don't look the way that I, I want to look, et cetera. How would you address that point? Like if you get to that place, but um, yeah, you're, you're kind of falling into a hole now, like now what? And maybe you're even regressing now. Yeah, I think a lot of that, it's a great question. I think a lot of that has to be done on the front end with uh, the meaning behind the goal. And and you'll start to hear some of the the red flags come out because I know from personal experience that I chased a number on the scale because I associated that with happiness. And when I achieved that number and I wasn't any happier, all I did was I moved the target. So I said, I'll be happy when I'm under 200 pounds. And then when I got under 200 pounds and I wasn't any happier, I was like, well, it must be 190. And I kept getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And I was never any happier. Uh, and so oftentimes when you get to the root of what's what's actually the meaning of this goal, why, why are we even setting this goal in the first place? Uh, a lot of the times you'll hear some of that language. Well, I know that I would be happier if I was, you know, you know, 120 pounds or whatever the goal weight is. Um, that's a red flag. That's something as a coach that we would want to talk through because if we're associating happiness with a number on the scale, um, we really have some, some, you know, inner work to do to figure out why that, why that's the case. Why is that the story that you're telling yourself? Um, and then, uh, ultimately we want to prepare for the fact that, um, you know, it, not a lot's going to change if you always think that happiness is somewhere else and it's not where you are. Uh, so that's kind of the front end work. And then as you're going through the process, you know, I said, take away the finish line, because I think if we look at a pursuit as more of a, uh, you know, a forever game than a means to an end, um, all of a sudden it becomes something more than just an, an arbitrary number or target. Um, you know, if it's, I want to be healthy because I love the way that it makes me feel and I want to be there for my kids and I want uh, to live, you know, a, a vibrant life, then there's no end game. There's no finish line. It's, it's an infinite game that we just get to keep playing for the love of the game. Um, and that's going to be way more sustainable. So yes, we can have checkpoints along the way and we can celebrate those checkpoints. Um, but if we know that the meaning is deeper than just the outcome or the finish line, um, it really helps to prevent that self-sabotage because you know, there you'll, you'll hear from athletes too. It's, you know, sometimes an athlete will say, you know, I want to win whatever championship or I want to win the CrossFit games. And you ask them the feeling what happened. And they said, you know, typically they say it felt good for like 10 minutes. And then I was on to the next thing I was trying to accomplish. Like they don't even take the time to really appreciate what they just did. They're already thinking about the next goal. Um, and that's kind of the danger of being so heavily outcome focused instead of just looking at the process for what it is. What does this actually mean to you? Why, why do you want this goal in the first place? And if we can create a strong meaning around it, most of the time, the meaning is going to be in the act instead of in the outcome. And that's when it becomes sustainable. 
Yeah, that's that's beautiful. And would you say that the lack of that meaning um, or, or lack of having a why is why most diets fail in the first place? Or would you say um, it's more that most people follow the false approaches or follow for fat diets, etc.? Yeah, I, I think the biggest issue with diets is that they work in opposition to how behavior change works. And I think that most people are looking for, uh, you know, a big promise because they're very outcome driven. So it's, you know, again, if I read something that says lose 30 pounds in six weeks, that's going to trigger a dopamine response. I think about how amazing it's going to be to lose 30 pounds. Immediately your brain starts to future pace how amazing that's going to feel and, and what it's going to, what you're going to look like. So it's very easy to get lured in to, to that big, bold promise. Um, then the actual protocol itself of trying to lose 30 pounds in six weeks um, is not rooted at all in sustainable behavior change. It's rooted in a bandaid. It's rooted in a, a quick fix. It's trying to shortcut the process. Um, and so because the individual is so outcome driven, they're ignoring the method to get there. They're ignoring the fact that, um, you know, cutting out carbs or fasting all day or, or doing hours of cardio uh, is not going to be sustainable for them. And, and typically because there's no behavior change being implemented, they oftentimes go back to their default operating system, which was what got them in a position where they wanted to lose 30 pounds in six weeks. So now all of a sudden it's back to the same things that they were doing before until they see the next promise of, 30 pounds in six weeks, and then the dopamine spike happens again. It's uh, you almost have to be really aware of your survival based brain. That's the, like, I'll even say it to myself. I felt the dopamine hit when I read that, like I'll say it out loud so I can catch myself when something's like, you know, there's, there's a promise that seems so ridiculous that it's even hard to believe. It's like, uh, you know, six ways to make millions of dollars from home without ever lifting a finger. And you're like, that is, not at all believable, but you can actually feel the dopamine hit that you would get from visioning that. And I'll say it just to create more self-awareness. Like I actually felt the dopamine hit from reading that, or, you know, it's so crazy because I know logically that that's unbelievable and there's no way that's real, but I could feel the difference in my physiology just from reading something like that. So it's really trying to create a high level of self-awareness mm -hmm. and knowing our natural tendency. If something feels too good to be true, it probably is. Um, and the the real way that behavior change works is not exciting at all. It's actually very difficult because you're going against what's predictable and what's certain. And our bodies and our brains want predictability. They want certainty. There's a reason why people stay in toxic relationships or a toxic work environment because it's known and it's predictable, even when it's harmful. Just the 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 fact that we know what's coming, even if it's pain, even if it's uh, you know something that is not helpful, just because it's predictable, our brain will just keep you in that same feedback loop because certainty increases our chances of survival. Predictability increases our chances of survival. So behavior change is very difficult for that reason. Um, so it has to come from a place of, of self-awareness and recognizing that there will be resistance. And it's understanding to your point, the meaning of like, why is this so meaningful to me? Why why do I want to go on this journey of changing my routines and habits and behaviors? Um, when there is a strong why attached to it, it's a lot easier to overcome that resistance that's going to happen along the way. Awesome. 
Thank you for all these really practical uh, takeaways, increasing your self-awareness, simply having a, a stronger why, why you're doing it, embracing a moderate approach or a habit-based approach rather. And then ideally on top of that, layering it, um, layering the personality approach. So I'm going to definitely drop um, the link to that personality assessment in the show notes as well. So people can go and see what category they might be falling into. But I just want to thank you for your time. I think that was super, super insightful. Um, I will also link your Instagram handle and um, website in the show notes so people can go and follow you. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, or share the episode on social. Very much appreciated. You can also follow us on Instagram at Nutrition Coaching and Life or head to our website, www nutritioncoachingandlife.com, where we provide more valuable content. Have a wonderful day. Now go out and work on your best self.